This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have such an extra special guest. His name is Will Danoff. He runs Fidelity's Contra Fund. It's the largest single manager fund with about $130 billion. And the track record of the fund is just outstanding. He has crushed all the competition over 30 years. He's beat large cap growth by 400 basis points. He's beat the S&P 500 300 basis points. Not only has he outperformed on an annual basis, if you put money into his fund versus the S&P 500 in 1990 when he started, his fund is now worth two and a half times more than the indexes. This is really a masterclass on how to think about active management, what you need to do to engage in stock picking, why it's so difficult, and why you need a powerful team of experts around you to help you with this. He has worked with all of the greats at Fidelity and explains why Fidelity is such a key aspect of this. I could babble about the conversation forever, Rather than do that, let me just stop and say, with no further ado, my conversation with the Fidelity Contra Funds, Will Danoff. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Will Danoff. He has been running Fidelity's Contra Funds for just about 30 years. The fund is the largest actively managed mutual fund run by one person. It's about $130 billion. And since September 1990, when he took over the fund, he has outperformed the benchmark S&P index by more than 300 basis points annually. Will Danoff, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. It's great to be with you. So that track record is really quite astonishing. You've returned on average... 13% compounded annually. Your benchmark, the S&P 500, is 10%. The average large cap growth fund has returned about 9%. So what is the secret of your success? Yeah, Barry, I think, you know, sometimes you lose track of the percentages, but I think if you had invested $10,000 in the S&P 500, and you should have your fact checkers figure this out, but I think that after 30 years of being up whatever it is 10% a year you're at like 200,000 and if you were invested in contra fund you'd be closer to like 480,000 so it really can make a difference compounding is an important concept for your listeners when it comes to investing and to the extent uh, you can find a fund or a company that can compound over time, it really does make a difference over the decades. But I'd say, Barry, for for me, the North Star has been the importance of analyzing companies, keeping an open mind, working really hard, and staying flexible, having a great team, and then maybe just bringing it all back to the earnings per share of the underlying companies and trying to think about, you know, what the company could earn looking out five, seven years. You know, will this company be bigger and better? So I do believe that the growth discipline is a superior discipline. 
and then you know once you've determined what you think the company might earn looking out to the extent you can look out and you have to be honest and say you know i i really am not sure you know in the in the world of technology you have to be really careful about extrapolating growth rates but then ideally you're trying to pay the the best price you can uh for you know a well positioned growth company with you know a good brand and great management and strong cash flow and stuff like that but i'd say you know cast a wide net be flexible and then you know continue to monitor what your your investments are doing and what your managements are doing i'm much more of a advocate of the you know sort of the poker game approach I think it's hard to say, you know, XYZ is going to be a buy and hold for 10 years, but, you know, and this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and therefore we're all in. Some investors can do that. I think over over 30 years, you, you make a lot of mistakes. You accept your mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. But one idea I have is just to say, listen, I think... You know, you're, you know, we're playing poker. I have an ace. You're showing a three. I think this is starting out to be a good hand for me. So I'm going to bet some and start to build a position. And then if I'm served another ace, meaning the company, you know, says it's going to expand into California or expand in India or, you know, introduce the new product and the results show that those efforts are going really well, then you bet more. So again, for me, it's a little more incremental and a little less, aha, the light bulb went off, you know, plastics are, you know, we're all in on plastics without data. So I would say, you know, let's start with the facts. You know, Fidelity is just an unbelievable place to manage money. We've got an unbelievable research team. We have, you know, experts in virtually every industry that matters. We have experts in virtually every region of the world that matters. We have experts in, you know, all disciplines in the market, value, growth, small, mid, large, all parts of the cap table, you know, investment grade, high yield, convertibles. And so... You know, Fidelity sort of the big city hospital, Barry. And, you know, for your listeners, you know, do you want to have the brain surgery in, you know, a small regional hospital in the middle of nowhere? Probably not. But if you go to a big city hospital where they're doing large numbers of these procedures, you're probably going to feel better. You know, everybody makes mistakes, but... We see more companies, we attend more meetings, we interview more management teams, and through that process, hopefully we're going to be able to identify changes that are important in different industries and also just identify what we consider truly world-class management teams that are doing things a little better. And... You know, you try to keep track and you do your best. And, you know, I've just survived, frankly, in a very competitive industry, Barry. But, you know, the Fidelity Hall of Fame managers, I mean, Joel Tillinghast, who's managing the low-priced stock fund, has done phenomenally well. Steve Weimer, 
who runs our growth fund, has done phenomenally well. We've got a whole cast of other folks in our starting lineup who are doing exceptionally well. And then, of course, you know, the long history with going back to, you know, George Vanderheide and Peter Lynch, Bruce Johnstone. But even before that, you know, Ned Johnson, Jerry Sy. The idea of doing bottoms-up fundamental company analysis is not going away. You mentioned the index, Barry. And, you know, the index is very hard to beat. Let's understand that there is survivor bias in the index. The better companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon grow and become a larger part of the index. And the weaker companies, you know, slow down and don't grow and, and therefore don't appreciate in value and therefore are a smaller part of the index. So the index is hard to beat. And I agree with Warren Buffett that, you know, the S&P 500 or even the Dow now is is not the the Dow or the S&P of, of uh, 75 or 80 years ago. You know, it's, it's a much more cash generative, much more growth oriented. You know, globalization has been very positive for you know, corporate profits, and I think very positive for society and the world, but we can get into that later. So, I, you know, I'd say work really hard, know yourself, know your companies, you know, continue to monitor your companies, try to upgrade on weakness, and, you know, try to be patient in long term. You know, you mentioned earlier the sort of so much noise now in the market and people worried about every tick, you know, I I think if you step back and say, what do I own? You know, you know, can I imagine, you know, just look around you and say, gosh, you know, my kids can't live without their smartphones and they, they love their smartphones, you know, and in, in Fidelity's case, we're able to talk to Luca Maestri, who's the CFO of Apple, and, you know, he shared with us recently that in the Americas, Apple's customer satisfaction with the iPhone is 98%. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. And then you step back and say, well, gosh, you know, 10 years ago, no one had, you know, iPhones. Everyone had Blackberries. And now, you know, I have two smartphones. I have a MacBook Air. I have an iPad. And I've got ear pods, you know, and it's, I'm really happy. They all work. And, you know, so you've got to be aware of what's happening in the world. And I think that's often where some Wall Street folks, particularly the the value discipline, can, you know, get a little confused. It's like, you know, the classic value trap. It's a really, you know, cheap stock, but it's not going anywhere. Doesn't mean it's not going to get cheaper, right. You know, it's a capital-intensive cyclical business, and you've got to make sure your assumptions are appropriately conservative. So let's stay with, with talking about fidelity a little bit. You mentioned some of the uh, the Murderer's Row, the 28 Yankees lineup you guys have. You started at Fidelity in 1986, but if my research is correct, it wasn't as a fund manager, right? You came in as an analyst? Yes, Barry. An interesting footnote for your listeners. I applied for a summer job in 1985, and I was rejected. So, Barry, one must always persevere. And, you know, I think the decision was probably the right one. I was a bit immature and not as experienced, but luckily, 
I was accepted in, for the full-time job as an analyst in 1986. And I think it's important when you think about companies as investments, as employers, as, to understand the culture of the company. And, you know, I'm so grateful and lucky that Fidelity was and still is a research-oriented, you know, active manager. And everyone, you know, that I mentioned earlier, all the great fund managers all started as analysts at Fidelity, you know. Oh, really? Does that include Peter Lynch? He started as an analyst? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Peter started as an analyst. George was an analyst. Uh, Bruce, of course. Everyone came up from the ranks. Ned was an analyst. Abby Johnson, who is the current CEO, was an analyst and then a fund manager. So when you have that common experience and common language, it's just so helpful. So you had Vinick between you and Lynch, right? So, yeah, one, um, Jeff Vinick, of course, you know, an unbelievably talented uh, analyst. Um and fund manager and investor started my year, but he started in the spring because he had taken a job in New York and then decided he wanted to work for Fidelity. So he started in the spring, but there were about seven of us, including Joel Tillinghast, who started a little later that year. And frankly, Barry, I was probably below average for my class. We, you know, we had a very strong class, but I was lucky that I was assigned the retail stocks. And the retail stocks were, it was a large group of stores, you know, consumer spending is something like two-thirds of the U.S. economy. And they had all sorts of different stocks, you know, Kmart and Sears were stodgy potential turnarounds, and then you had the membership warehouse clubs were sort of the new shiny concept that you had to really think hard about, you know, what's this industry going to look like, and then the department stores were sort of slower growers but generating free cash flow, and, you know, the Walmart was the thoroughbred, and you know, it was really fun and, and great, and it was relatively understandable. So I think I was exposed to many different types of stocks, and managements all were people, sort of people, people, so you didn't have to try to understand technology or science. It was just, you know, going into a store with a, a CEO or a CFO and, you know, seeing how they interacted with the customer and looking at the prices and, you know, do, is this store appealing? So anyway, but, you know, the beauty of Fidelity is we're all in the trenches together and, you know, Peter and George and Bruce were in these meetings with me and many others and, you know, it was a really great sort of apprenticeship to watch, you know, these great investors analyze different companies and understand, you know, the idea of unit growth. If I think when I first met Bernie Marcus, the founder of the Home Depot, I think he might have had like 40 stores and now they have 2,000. But, you know, the, the, the thought was if it's working in Atlanta, Georgia, it can work in Florida, and I remember when they first opened their stores in 
They acquired some stores to expand in Texas, which didn't work out as well. But when they first opened the stores in California, you know, I mean, it was literally there was another concept across the street, and, you know, the Home Depot parking lot was near full, and the other store was sort of going into a bowling alley. You know, it was virtually empty. So, you know, part of it is being practical, you know, sort of what is actually happening. As I said earlier, Barry, earnings per share becomes sort of the, the North Star for a growth investor. And, you know, if Home Depot is opening 15% new stores a year and their old stores were generating, let's say, you know, 5 or 10% growth and the margins were going up and the ROI on the new stores was high, you know, you start projecting out, you know, 30% growth and whatever that works out to. But, you know, doubling of earnings in three years with you know, the potential for many, many more stores. So that was a great insight for me that helped me, you know. And again, I you know, over 30 years, I, all I can tell you is that I was there and I should have, you know, the, the one of the great lessons learned, Barry, is I should have bought more of these great growth stocks like the Home Depot. <laughs> or, you know, I was there when Howard Schultz went public in 1994. I mean, you can't. You can't, I mean, it was, it was 94, 92, but again, I was a young fund manager. But picture this, you know, Schultz had a hundred and, I think, 140 cafes when he opened up. They were all in Seattle and Portland. I remember someone sitting next to me on the roadshow lunch saying, eh, you know, it might work in the Pacific Northwest, but, you know, they're tree huggers there and they like, you know, to sit around in a coffee shop. But it's not going to work in New York, or it's not going to work in San Francisco. But the data showed, you know, I believe Oren Smith, who was the CFO at the time, said they had opened a couple of stores in San Fran, and they were all exceeding their expectations. And, you know, the ROIs and the new units were through the roof. I think the arithmetic was because they were leased units, it cost $250,000 to open a Starbucks way back when. The stores were doing 650000 of revenue in, like, year two and a 20% EBITDA or cash-on-cash cash unit volume. So, they were, you know, for 250000 you were getting $125,000 of cash in, like, year two, which meant you could finance rapid growth and it was working, and, you know, the comp store sales, you know, the comp cafe sales were double-digit for the last three years. It was the perfect story. So here's the lesson to your listeners, Barry. The stock pops on day one or day two, and it was always very expensive for what it was. It was like 35, 30 times the out-year estimate. But the company continued to grow and grow, and it stayed expensive for like 15 years. But Even it was a as great it kept stock. growing. Yeah. yeah, it kept growing. It stayed expensive. So sometimes an expensive stock that executes really well can be a great story. You know, they added Frappuccinos. They went out overseas, and it worked in China. But it, it worked everywhere in the U.S., and, you know, no one else – was able to replicate. I remember Pete's came in and this one and that one and, you know, McDonald's was going to offer, you know, cheaper coffee and try to upgrade. But anyway, so sometimes you have to say a truly outstanding franchise with a great management team and a great business model can be 
a great stock. I mean, the analogy in sports would be, you know, what do you pay Michael Jordan or one of these truly exceptional athletes? Whatever the heck he wants. If they, you know, hit the three-pointers and win the championship, you're going to pay them a lot of money. So one of the lessons is that, you know, better businesses are going to trade at higher PEs, and you just have to accept that. Now, of course, your listeners have to monitor, you know, a retail investor can go into the stores. They're out there comparing you know, what Starbucks is doing, the quality of the coffee, the experience in the cafe, you know, how is the mobile order and pay experience, you know, how is the app, is it easy to use, is it delighting me? You know, some of the great entrepreneurs in the last decade have talked to me about, you know, what would the world look like without my company? And, you know, during the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of people have said, you know, if I didn't have Amazon, my world right. would be significantly worse. And isn't that a great place to be if you're a partner with, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and the Amazon team? Or, you know, there are other a handful of companies that are, you know, Costco, I think, is, is one of those special companies that has delighted their members over many years. And, you know, so many people say, my gosh, do you believe, you know, what I just got at Costco? It was such high quality and such a great price. That's the type of company that over 30 years, you know, you sort of say, gosh, I wish I had owned more of those. And by the way, it's it's not, it's a little easier than, you know, when I first started in the early 90s as a fund manager, I was trying to find companies that no one else had heard of, that no one else owned. And, you know, there are a lot of tough businesses that are selling cheap, and I was running around saying cheap and getting better. Let's try to find a turnaround. And, you know, turnarounds sometimes work. They can be really awesome stocks when they do work, but the degree of difficulty is higher than just saying, my gosh, you know, Google is just unbelievable. You know, how did we live without Google? Or, you know, how did we live, you know, without Amazon, for example? You're coming up on your 30th anniversary, right? By the time this broadcasts, it'll be September 2020. You started at the Contra Fund in September 1990. Did you ever imagine you would be running the same exact fund for 30 years? Honestly, Barry, no. I think, you know, again, as I said, Fidelity is a great place to manage money. There's some very, very talented and and fun people, and we, you know, continue to attract some really good people. But it's it's the kind of place where ordinary folks can do extraordinary things when they work together and they communicate. And, you know, I'm sort of the Woody Allen of Fidelity. I just show up and, you know, I show up to more meetings. And, you know, I remember one year I had an odd 7 a.m. meeting, which is early. Usually our meetings start at 8 a.m. But somebody wanted to see me or somebody was there. So we did a 7 a.m. meeting. So then the meeting ends at 8, and I'm kind of hungry and I see that somebody else is hosting an 8 a.m. meeting that hadn't started. So I go in to, to, to grab a muffin, 
and then the host and the management walk in. <laughs> I think it was Joel hosting an Irish bank. So I was like, oh, hi, and they thought I was there to see the meeting when I really wanted a muffin. But anyway, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll listen to your story. <laughs> you know, I, I had to fudge it. And so we listened, and it turned out that the Irish economy was coming back, and I don't know, because it was Ireland, the stock was like at eight times earnings, and there were only like three banks of any size in Ireland. And, you know, it turned out there's a certain serendipity involved with the business that, again, at Fidelity, there's so many companies. Sometimes Joel and I are just like, what are you, you know, what's going on right now? Is there a call that could be of interest or is there a company management coming in? You know, every week, you know, on Fridays, I look at the schedule for the next week, and it's just like, uh-oh, these are two companies that are in at the same time. We've got to move one of them. Or, wow, you know, I definitely have to see this company because, you know, oil and gas is way out of favor. And, you know, this management team has done a decent job surviving over time. And, you know, the ability to stay current on lots of industries and lots of geographies and and then there's sort of luck every once in a while you meet managements that help you i mean again over 30 years barry one important you know clearly the the you know the o one internet bubble burst was you know an important event, but what was most important, I think, was the aftermath in the sort of 03-04 period. Most growth investors were still hiding under their desks. They were shell-socked. In many cases, they were experiencing outflows. And I remember, again, just you know, seeing on our meeting schedule a company meeting for Ask Jeeves, ASKJ, sure. which I believe... Early, uh, early search engine. Exactly. And I believe it's now owned by Interactive Group. But, you know, again, it's like, what motivated me to say, I think I should go and hear this story. The stock had, I think, had gone from, like, 5 to 100 and was back to, like, bottomed at 2 and was at 8. So I said... You know, 100 to 8 means expectations are low. Maybe I'll learn something. You know, and again, at Fidelity, you can, you know, between you and me, I can go in a half hour, learn something, and then politely leave. And, you know, I guess I, I take my job very seriously. You know, I have pictures of my shareholders in my office. And I just decided, you know, if I'm going to do my job, I'm in the I'm in the fashion industry. I've got to look and consider all possibilities. If management has come, I think Ask Jeeves was based in New York, not in California. But you know, if management has traveled all the way to Boston, right to our offices, to tell us what's going on, I should at least attend. And I should be ideally prepared. I've just told you two stories, Barry, where I wasn't prepared. But, you know, engage with management, ask some intelligent questions, try to understand and empathize with management, you know, sort of what has happened, where are you going, what your goal is. So Ask Jeeves had hired a new CEO, bright young man, 
and he said, our niche is natural language search, which means in Google you would type in, you know, population Morocco, and Google would figure out what you wanted, but in Ask Jeeves you would type in, what is the population of Morocco? And that, you know, they had like one, one or two percent market share, and the goal was to go to five or six, and that was going to sort of lead them to profitability and, and a much bigger business. So at some point, I forget, we had a young search engine analyst, I guess. I can't remember who was hosting the meeting, maybe a small cap analyst or fund manager. But I said, can we just step back and explain, you know, the lay of the land for search engines? So, you know, he sort of flippantly said, well, you know, Google is crushing everybody. They have 40% market share, plus they're doing the search for, I think it was AOL. So they had 40% plus the 15 or 20% that was AOL-related search. So they had 55% market share, and they were crushing everybody. And then I think Yahoo had bought Overture, and maybe Microsoft had some skin in the game somewhere. But... You know, it was like 55 to 60, then a 25% player, and then a, several, you know, very smaller players. So, again, you know, Barry, I don't know what happened, but I just, you know, what's the key to my success? I just say, why? You know, or please elaborate. So I said, God, why is Google doing so well? And, and what was the answer? The, the answer was, you know, they have a better algorithm. They have a larger index. Because they have so much market share, they're seeing more searches, and, you know, they're just innovating faster. And I think, you know, as I said, you know, the quote, and I would have to check my notes, and if you want, Barry, I do have my notes from that meeting, you know, they are crushing everybody. There is no way we're going to catch Google. We do, our, our plan does not we don't need to beat Google at what they're doing. We're going to play in this little niche. So again, by that point, Barry, I was already 13 years into Contra Fund, and I had developed this idea of best of breed. And I, you know, listened politely to the Ask Jeeves story for another couple of <laughs> minutes, and I excused myself. And in my mind, I was thinking, I want to own Google. I don't, <laughs> you know. That's what I was hearing between the lines. They, they yes. convinced you to buy their competitor. Exactly. So, again, you know, <laughs> by attending meetings, by paying attention, you know, listen, your readers can listen to podcasts. They can listen to YouTube interviews, which I would highly recommend they do. They can read the papers. They can pay attention. They can watch what their kids are doing. They watch what their friends are doing. But, you know, that was a data point by a well-placed competitor that clearly showed that Google was doing special things and was a special company. So, And I think at that time, maybe it was 03, there were already perhaps a couple of articles about you know Google hiring Eric Schmidt as a CEO, preparing to go right. public, whatever it was. There was some groundswell of articles about Google. Um, and so I was very interested when Google announced they were going to go public. And again, the backdrop was the, the growth investor was struggling. The, the mark, I can't remember exactly what was happening in the market, but 
they came public in August of '04. Right. August, you know, here we are in August of 2020. You know, things quiet down a little bit. People are taking vacation. But I was there front and center. Sergey Brin and Eric Schmidt, you know, came on the road show. And again, you know, do a little preparation. Open the prospectus. And Google had doubled their revenue in 02, doubled their revenue in 03, and doubled their revenue in the first quarter of 04. It was like, oh, my gosh, they are doing something right. And, oh, by the way, operating margins were like 20% or 25 even, and they had a billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet before they went public. Huh. So That's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm, so again, I'm going to share yeah. a, I'm going to share a very quick Google story, and it Please was that do. period. It was 2002, and I had been publishing for a few years on Yahoo, Yahoo GeoCities, Mm-hmm. And I get an invite to be a beta tester for one of the early versions of Google. And you just had to use it for 10 minutes and, oh, my God, this is so much better than anything. You could find whatever you want almost instantly. So I write back and say, happy to be a beta tester. By the way, I'm in finance. Do you guys need any money? I'd love to make an investment. They write back, we're good. Thanks anyway. I want to say that was <laughs> 01 or, or 02. But um, it was so clearly, so clearly superior. So, Will, let's talk a little bit about your process. How do you look at a company? Where do you begin? Not every Google falls into your lap through a competitor's. How do you start the process of deciding what you want to think about purchasing? Yeah, that's a great question, Barry. And I would just urge uh, your listeners that if you want to invest, you know, wisely over the long term, you know, you have to make a commitment. You know, it's a very competitive world, but, you know, know yourself, stay within your circle of competence. I mean, Warren Buffett is, you know, the greatest investor of our generation, and, you know, he's out there on YouTube. Please listen to a couple of interviews with Warren Buffett. He always talks about staying within his area of expertise and, you know, he knows the insurance industry really well, the financial industry, he knows consumer products very well. And in a fascinating way, Barry, he always says, you know, when the Internet hit, you know, I was curious if the Internet was going to affect if people were going to be drinking Coca-Cola or chewing gum, and he decided not. But, you know, you have to monitor what's happening. But, I, you know, I'm interested in companies that I think are going to be bigger and better in the next, you know, call it three to five, seven years. And I'm interested in companies that are doing well or getting better right now. That was one of the great, you know, insights, you know, talking to Peter Lynch, working with Peter Lynch, watching Peter Lynch, you know, especially the small and mid-cap companies. I mean, you know, as we talked about with Google, I mean, if if you're a, a, a billion in revenues, you know, why shouldn't you be growing much faster than a company with $100 billion of revenues? And, you know, so if you really have something special, consumers should know it and see it and, you know, want it. So I, I am intrigued with the subset of companies that are growing quickly. And usually, frankly, Barry, it's easier to find, you know, to go from the specific company to the sort of neighborhood or the general theme that it is to 
start a priori and say, oh, gosh, the Internet, therefore, you know, I'm going to find some Internet right. companies. For me, it's, you know, starting bottoms up. And, you know, I think your listeners and, you know, potential investors are well served by saying, okay, what has this company done in the last five years? You know, have they grown their revenues? Have they improved their margins? You know, have they expanded into new markets? You know, and then try to understand what management wants to do in the next five years and try to decide, you know, what you think the likelihood of that management team to, to execute on their plan. And, you know, so I'm a little concerned when, you know, these special purpose acquisition companies are coming and, you know, they really don't have a track record. So, you know, I always say, let's see what you buy and what you pay and try to assess the management team that's doing the buying and, you know, what have they done if they're sort of good at, you know, rolling up companies but not so good at integrating them. I'm not that interested. How much of this is art and how much of this is science? I I was going to ask it, is this a qualitative assessment? Is this a quantitative assessment? But you strike me as someone who is pre-naturally insightful at evaluating companies' managements and products. It's not just, here's the numbers. Anybody can look at the cage or anybody can look at the EBITDA. Not everybody can consistently pick companies that beat the index. So, so how much of this is Will Danoff magic and how much of this is something else? Probably a lot of something else, Barry, because I, I don't have that much magic, and I certainly, after 30 years, I'm not sure if I have any magic left, but it's it's competitive, and you, you have to play to your strengths, and, you know, as I said, one of the advantages of, of you know, of fidelity is the management teams are willing to talk to us and, and you know, share some of the insights that they have, and ideally, you know, you're in the business of asking good questions. I'm in the business of asking good questions. So I do try to empathize with management. And you'd be surprised, Barry, even the most successful CEOs like to be recognized. They like Mm -hmm. to be thanked for their efforts. You know, they like to be treated as, you know, sort of guests and as you know, special people. So when these managements come to Boston, you know, I like to be prepared. I like to offer them, you know, some water or coffee or a donut or whatever they want. And, you know, sometimes we have lunches and it's just a matter of, you know, what do you like for lunch? You know, I don't want you to have a a cheeseburger if you don't like cheeseburgers. So anyway, you know, I, I do think that a little empathy as an investor goes a long way. And, you know, I, I do think that if if you step back and try to put yourself in the shoes of an entrepreneur and think about, you know, what is, you know, this CEO really thinking about? And, you know, that I think makes you a better investor as well because... So often, you know, they've had a a big idea or they've had an insight, you know, the Michael Dell, let's go direct. You know, the PC business was it was a commodity business, but he figured right. out, 
you know, a, a better way to get closer to his customer. But, you know, when you think back to, you know, someone, I think he was in high school when he started to, you know, take computers apart and put them back together and add certain features you know, I think he was adding floppy disk drives or hard disk drives. I forget. He, you know, he he was able to soup up, you know, a basic IBM PC and then other PCs to make them better. You know, it's just like this guy has a passion for what he's doing, and try to tap into, you know, where do you see the bigger opportunities? Why are you doing well? Where do you think your vulnerabilities are? And if you have these discussions early on, you know, in your learning about a company, maybe later, you know, three or four years down the road, that becomes a really important issue that, you know, these entrepreneurs often have a sixth sense of, you know, what they need to do. And and then, of course, hopefully... They're planting seeds and, you know, strengthening their company, hiring new executives that can, you know, prepare them for whatever competitive onslaught or the change in the market so that they can capitalize on it. But, you know, you do, you have to decide, you know, is the executive in it for the money or in it to build something really special? I mean, we talked about, you know, am I trying to build a company where people are going to say, my gosh, I can't, you know, the world is a better place because of, you know, Instagram or WhatsApp or, um, you know, whatever, my, you know, Microsoft, you know, Teams, I, you know, it's a different, it's, a, it's, a, it's another way of looking at things. And, you know, I think something like a new company like Shopify really is dedicated to making entrepreneurs you know, more successful helping merchants sell online in a very, you know, sort of easy way. And, you know, they're building, a, you know, what seems to be a very powerful business. And, you know, it's taking off and COVID has been a huge tailwind for them. But again, when you listen to management and, you know, you can go on Twitter and follow the founders there or, you know, go on YouTube and listen to some interviews and decide for yourself, are these the sorts of people I want to partner with? Quite quite interesting. So, Will, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of running a fund more or less as a single manager. How does that affect your decision-making versus so many funds that seem to be run by committees? That's a great question, Barry. Ned Johnson, who you know, I believe is the chairman emeritus of Fidelity now, who built the firm, you know, from the mid seventies through let's say twenty fifteen, so a great forty year run, believed in accountability. And I think, you know, in life we all have to be accountable. So he really liked the idea of having single managers responsible for individual funds. I am responsible for the performance of the Contra Fund. I have a great team of analysts that I work closely with, and in some cases, I will buy a stock, the recommendation of an analyst. But usually, I work and say, you know, okay, what are you covering? What do you like? Why do you like it? And if this is your very best idea, 
and you think this company is doing something special and they're going to gain market share profitably over time, let's just call the company together. Let me know next time you're going to do an update call or a post-quarterly earnings call, and I'll just hear the story myself. And, you know, Peter Lynch used to joke and say, we're just asking for a picture after someone offers you a blind date. You know, we want to do some basic work. And, you know, Joel Tillinghast, my great, you know, longtime colleague, just says, you know, if you would simply avoid unprofitable companies, that, you know, would improve your performance significantly. Now, the world has changed in 30 years, and the biotech industry has become bigger and better and leveraged all these great insights into the human genome so that you can go from losing a lot of money to FDA approval of a drug that turns into a billion-dollar blockbuster very quickly. But, you know, for the most part, I think, you know, there are certain lessons that we've learned. But, you know, when do you sell a stock, Barry? You sell a stock when you have a better idea or when the fundamentals deteriorate. So if you're casting a wide net, you're, you know, attending a lot of company meetings, you're listening to a lot of calls, you know, I don't know, I think over 30 years, Barry, the numbers are, you know, let's say on average, I talk to five management teams a day, that's 25 management teams a week, 50 weeks, you know, in a working year, 1,200 companies a year, over 30 years, you know, some crazy number of of company meetings, you know, 30,000, you know, interviews I've had that, you know, as I said, the poker game, you know, this one sounds a little better, I'm going to buy this one. This one sounds a little worse, I'm going to sell this one. It's sort of like tasting. I'm, I'm a chef making the master stew that everyone is going to hopefully love. And, you know, but you've got to taste the stew all the time. It needs a little more pepper, a little more salt, a little less of this. You know, that's sort of the day-to-day operation. But hopefully, you know, every year I can find, you know, one name, you know, maybe one name a year that I can make a large position. So I have so many questions about that exact thing. And I'll ask a short one and then a a more nuts and bolts longer question. So you're doing over the course of your career, tens of thousands of company calls. Yes. How finely tuned is your BS detector? And let me let me phrase that a little more nicely. When you're mm-hmm. speaking to a manager, do you get a pretty immediate sense of, hey, this guy is telling a great story because there's a really something substantial underneath, or hey, this guy's a salesman and he's selling me a line of stuff that I'm not I'm not biting on. Like how how do you read people in those calls? Yeah, no, Barry, you you made a very good point earlier that, you know, your emotional quotient is very important in this business. But I would say sitting across the table and asking some very basic questions can give you a very good sense of management. You know, are they humble? Are they honest? Are they willing to, you know, be realistic? But, you know, you have to understand, as I said, okay, you know, this management has traveled halfway around the world to talk to Fidelity, you know, yeah, maybe we are the largest shareholder, or maybe we could be the largest shareholder, but 
there's a reason why this management team is here. Why is it? You know, and often, you know, there is a reason. You know, they want to do a secondary offering and raise money. They want to do an acquisition, and therefore they want a, a higher stock price, so they have a richer currency to do the acquisition. But, you know, I, I would say that 99% of the management teams that we talk to are honest and, you know, once in a while, you know, different people do tell the stories more humbly or, or more arrogantly, but you you want to see, as I said earlier, you know, management with passion. I, I would say one way to reduce the risk of, you know, the arrogant CEO is to watch how the entire management team interacts, and ideally you see you know, more than just one great leader, but an entire team, you know, the COO, mm-hmm. the CFO, the CSO, you know, does the entire C-suite sing the same, you know, song from the hymn book? You know, are they all on the same page? Do they work well together? Do they seem to, you know, I remember, you know, again, it all goes back to, you know, I was the retail analyst. I'm, you know, at a dinner with the the great Sam Walton, you know, one of the, you know, truly sure. great, you know, post-war legends. Yeah. yeah, and you know, people are asking him all sorts of questions, and Sam was like, "Well, you know, Jack Shoemaker, why don't you answer that one? Don Soderquist, why don't you take that one? Paul Carter, why don't you take that one? David Glass, why don't you take that one?" And you know, he was a very effective leader. And, you know, you just realize that this was a very powerful culture. You know, we're going to lower prices and, you know, sort of enable, you know, middle-class Americans and rural Americans, you know, to live a better life by, you know, sort of being more efficient, you know, embracing, you know, you think back. And again, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but Sam and his team were aware of Saul Price's new Price Club, which was the membership warehouse club. They copied it or experimented themselves. You know, they were open to a new idea, and they, you know, started the Sam's uh, Club business. And I think with Sam's, then they sort of learned about the food business, which became very important, and started opening super centers. You know, and they were aware of Carrefour in France and. I don't know how it's pronounced, M-E-I-J-E-R-S, which was a hypermarket up in the upper Midwest. So, you know, again, you want to see managements that are open to new ideas, open to adjacent markets, willing to experiment. You know, I like the management that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try a few things. They may not work. They may not. You know, I did really well early on with George Sherman at Danaher, you know, and George used to always talk about, you know, one, like, business reviews and the Danaher business system. And, you know, he had studied uh, the great plants, you know, the manufacturing techniques in Japan, the Toyota business system, Dr. Ono, and then he went to Korea. But, you know, I was like, George, you know, tell me about this. And, you know, Chaka Chaka, which was, I think, the either the Japanese or Korean term for just-in-time inventory and the idea of reducing waste. Barry, this is like, you know, waste is time. It's Waste is inventory. Waste is like if you have to move from, you know, one part of the kitchen to the other part of the kitchen. 
you know, you just sort of say, this guy can go deep. And, you know, huh. so yes, there is some arrogance for a successful uh, executive, and you, you want to be careful about that. But again, when, you know, what I've, what I've loved during this COVID period is to be able to Zoom with management teams, and there are a large portion, frankly, of American management teams that have emphasized and prioritized the health and safety of their colleagues. And it's been, you know, very inspiring to hear, you know, these these great executives understand that they have to be on the front line. They have to make sure their people are, are safe. And a lot of the companies have invested a lot of money, you know, in protective gear and, you know, thinking hard about the return to work. And, you know, so anyway, Yes, it it is a concern, and again, I would urge your listeners, YouTube these executives, decide if you like their arc, you know, how did you come to this company, and, you know, what was the the great insight, and, I mean, let's, let's remember, you know, Bernie Marcus was fired by Handy Dan, and, you know, he started the Home Depot in his 40s, so you don't have to be a college dropout at, you know, 20 years old to start the latest tech company. You Experience matters, and if you are dedicated and, you know, have the right skill set, you can, you know, be a great success later in life. I, I do like smart, motivated, passionate folks who have done it before, as I said, you know, what have you done for me in the last five years? What are you going to do in the future? I mean, I remember when Mark Zuckerberg came out on the IPO Roadshow, and, you know, you know, what's the right question for a 27-year-old who I, I think at the time had three-quarters of a billion, 750 million daily active users? You know, it's just like what you have accomplished is, is remarkable. You know, right. and then try to learn from these folks. And anyway, and you let want me, to try let me to... Tee up, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it was, I remember Mark showed up in a t-shirt and a hoodie, and I was like, that's great. That's what we want. We want somebody to be who they are. But I will tell you that I projected my Facebook account, which had like 30 friends, (laughs) onto, you know, the conference room wall just to try to make him feel a little more comfortable. It was just like, we're engaged with our product. And when Evan Spiegel from Snapchat came public. The analyst made a Snapchat story when he came in, and we sh- we showed it to Evan, and he loved it. You know, you got to kind of try to connect with these executives at their level. You know, like when I was the stores analyst, and even now as a fund manager, when these companies come around, it's just like, we should go shopping together. Let's go to your store together. You don't want to be in a conference room. I don't want to be in a, necessarily be in a conference room. Let's go out there. And Jason Weiner, who's one of my close colleagues, has done a great job with uh, some of the fidelity funds and growth funds. And, you know, for a while there, every time management was coming in early in sort of the early days of the Internet, he was going onto their website. And it was like, you know, you talk about you know, what management says and what they're doing is like, this all sounds great, but I don't see any of those initiatives on the front page of your website. And it was just like, ooh, you know, why not? That's <laughs> but, a good question. Yeah. So anyway, but the other point, Barry, and your listeners have to keep in mind that whatever management says, there is accountability, you know, every quarter, 
you know, Warren Buffett doesn't like quarterly earnings. You know, Jamie Dimon doesn't like quarterly earnings. But the reality is every quarter you have more fundamental data by which to at least analyze what has happened. And every industry is cyclical. Every industry is affected by COVID or the global financial crisis or the Internet bubble. But it should make sense. Oh, gosh. Makes sense to you me. Know, Argentina, oil prices spiked in the last quarter. Therefore, our raw material costs went through the roof. Our gross margins were down. But guess what? It's a two-quarter phenomenon, and we're going to be back to more normal level. You know, the airline. Oh, God. Oil prices, you know, jet fuel went way up. Our margins were down. But that's going to affect everybody in our industry. So... We're going to be relatively okay. We're still expanding. We still have, you know, a low-cost operation because we only use the same Boeing 737s, and the other guys are going to struggle, blah, blah, blah. So it it has to make sense. (laughs) I remember meeting the great Herb Kelleher, and Uh I, I think one of my questions, one, you know, again, Fidelity is a great place to manage money for whatever reason. Herb came in, and everybody was at a tech conference or everybody was at a healthcare conference. I think there were two other investors and me in the meeting, and I was like, "Herb, the great Warren Buffett says, you know, he got, you know, he lost a lot of money in U.S. Air. How can you make money in the airline industry?" <laughs> Warren bet on the wrong airline. <laughs> But we talked a little bit about the idea of flexibility. And, you know, what is management supposed to be doing? Management has to pay attention. And he gave some example that when Midway Airlines was opening up or there were some new gates, they called and said, hey, someone canceled on us. We've got six gates. You know, it was like a Thursday afternoon. But do you want them? you got to let us know ASAP. And Herb and his team, like, pulled an all-nighter, and by Friday afternoon, they said, yes, we want them. And here are the terms that we want, and they negotiated. But, you know, that's sort of what an active manager should be doing. We, you know, you have to pay attention, and hopefully you bet big when you see a big opportunity. Yeah, and, quite fascinating. You know. So, Will, you've mentioned so many fascinating stories about so many companies Walmart and Starbucks and Costco and Amazon and Southwest and Home Depot. I got to ask, how many of these companies are you still long or more generally when you find a company like a Home Depot or a Starbucks, how long do you stay with them and how can you tell when something is just a temporary wobble or a more significant threat to the business model? That's a great question, Barry. And again, we're always learning. We're always trying to improve. And I've made so many mistakes over the years. But I'd say maybe in the last 15 years, I realized that lowering my turnover would change my process to think longer term and therefore sort of raise the bar of the companies that I was buying to say, hey, if you think about it, Barry, if I am going to own this stock for the next 10 years, it better be a really high-quality company 
and I better have a high degree of conviction that the company is going to be bigger and better in the next five years. So maybe I want to do another couple of months of research to make sure I really understand the company's competitive advantages. I really know the management team and the entire, you know, culture of the company and why they're going to do so well and to better understand their product roadmap and the innovation and the competitive set. So that's helped me a lot. And so, you know, I've, I've tried to stay in companies and not be faked out and sort of, again, what is sort of market noise, you know, worried about some tweet or, you know, some concern about inflation or, you know, the dollar moving this way or that way, which is sort of irrelevant in most cases to the strength and long-term profitability of a company. I would say, and I'd urge your listeners, and I'd urge you to think about this idea of when in doubt, check the fundamentals. When in doubt, listen to the latest quarterly webcast. When in doubt, look at the latest presentation to investors. When in doubt, you know, if if you can, call the company. So that, that's really intriguing, and I have to yeah. ask you, most people go out, they buy a 1,000 shares of stock, they can jump all in or all out very easily. Mm-hmm. You're obviously swinging around a lot more weight. How do you enter any given stock? Is it a position that you put a toe in the water and build over time? Do you have a specific strategy? I know some people like to add to what's working and subtract to what's not. How do you own an Amazon or a Home Depot? Is it is it a slow, gradual process, or what? what's the method behind that? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Barry, we all would love to have a huge amount of conviction. You know, when I think about some of the great investors I know, you know, the Bill Millers, the Henry Ellen Bogans, you know, I think they have more conviction than I do, or they get it earlier I'm trying to improve. And, you know, often it can be a meeting where you just, you know, meet someone who's running an important division or a smaller division, and you're like, wow. I was out uh, at PayPal, and I met someone there who I thought was really exceptional. And again, when you can visit with the management team and get beyond, you know, the CFO or the treasurer or even the CEO and meet some of the people who are in the field who, you know, truly know the product set and the competitive set, you say, wow, you know, this makes sense to me. So anyway, whatever it takes to get conviction. And, you know, I've told the analysts, if you don't understand something, tell the management you want to fly out to headquarters and, you know, spend more time. It's okay. You know, no one... The light bulb sometimes, I'm spending a lot of time when I'm talking to management, they're like, well, why don't you guys own more stock? And I've got to say, you know, I made a mistake, but, you know, one of the great lessons (laughs) over 30 years, Barry, and this is important for all your listeners, if a stock has doubled or even tripled, you have not missed it. And I don't like to give all my secrets, but if a stock has doubled or tripled, you have not missed it. You have to say, you know, have the mental whiteout that Peter Lynch always talks about for the past and say what is going to happen in the future because 
let's step back. Bill Gates, Michael Dell, they didn't sell after the first double. They didn't sell after the first triple. So, yes, I do think it's an excellent idea to say, I would like to own this stock for the next decade or two decades because I understand, you know, the niche that the company is fulfilling. I think they're in a big market. I think the management team is going to continue to innovate and continue to grow, make rational decisions about expanding and developing new products. And they, they understand their customer. They want to delight their customer, blah, blah, blah. So the reality is, Barry, that I was influenced by Warren Buffett. I was with Warren in 2012. He invited Fidelity to do an MBA day in Omaha. And, you know, we were all, I was given a chance to ask him a question. I said, Warren, I'm managing $100 billion. What advice would you give me? And he said, when you have a good idea, bet big. And if you look back and you know, we were influenced, Joel and I were influenced by Peter Lynch, who had like a thousand stocks in, in Magellan, and Joel still runs with a huge number of stocks in low-priced stock funds. You know, he's, he's an exceptional intellect and can handle that. But the number of stocks in Contrafund fell. I literally looked at, I think I might have had 500 or 600 stocks at the time, and I just said, let's look at the bottom 300 and say up or out. And oh, I wow. looked at the top 50, and Peter always talks about this. You know, the best stocks are probably stocks you already own. You need to bet bigger. So I was more concentrated. You know, but you mentioned earlier what, you know, what's really happening right now. Technology has been a massive tidal wave. The Internet and software, great Mark Andreessen, you know, said it best. Software is eating the world. It, it, it's, it's more efficient. It makes less mistakes. It's enabling you know, people all over the world to connect with each other. And so the so let's software... let's talk about some of those, yeah. those companies. So the, software, some of those... The, 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 short, the short answer is the software industry is growing rapidly. It's highly profitable. And, the you know, many parts of the tech industry are not capital intensive. The great Apple, you know, Steve Jobs is a genius to convince Hanhai... Foxconn to make the phones for him, so he earns a high margin, and he doesn't have to spend a lot of money building factories. But, you know, you think about what, you know, Amazon has done, generating a lot of free cash flow. Apple's generating a huge amount of free cash flow. Facebook is generating a huge amount of free cash flow. Microsoft is generating a huge amount of free cash flow. Technology, the tech industry is knowledge-based. It's higher margin. And for the moment, you know, it's still growing because it's a global industry. Those are three of your biggest holdings you just ran through there. Yeah, Amazon, yeah, Facebook, yeah, yeah. and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So someone, I mentioned to a friend, I was interviewing you. Yeah. And I said, if you were going to ask, and he's a tech geek uh, and runs a tech-focused hedge fund. And I said, if you're going to ask Will Danoff a question about technology, what would it be? And he surprised me with... Why the S&P 500 as a benchmark? Aren't you really more of a NASDAQ 100 guy? And I thought that was kind of an interesting observation. How do you respond to that? You know, there's a lot of truth to that. I am much more of a growth investor. I am, in my opinion, a capital appreciation fund with a growth bias. So I do have a go anywhere, a large grow anywhere component. And 
it's just the technology has been such a powerful tidal wave that I've probably stayed in technology longer and, and bigger than you know I would have expected. Benchmarks are important, and Fidelity, for legal reasons, does not want to change the benchmark. It's actually sort of time-consuming and cumbersome to change benchmark. It probably makes sense. And the S&P 500 is hard enough to beat as is. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are some of my larger, more institutional investors who do look at, you know, the Russell 1000 growth, you know, versus mm-hmm. Contra, and there I'm not as, frankly, the performance has not been as good, and I don't know if if my bench was the Russell 1000 growth, if I would be even bigger in some of these names, but so... Huh, that's interesting. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it is what it is. I, I do think benchmarks are important. I mean, what, what Larry Fink and, you know, John Bogle did with passive investing has been really good for the individual investor. You know, you don't want to be in a situation when, you know, oh, my God, Danoff or Reinholds have lost their fastball. I'm going to sell. The the beauty of the index, if you just buy an index, is I'm going to own the index and I'm going to buy the index every year with my 401k contribution. And, you know, when I retire, I'm hopefully going to have a nice nest egg to retire with, yeah, as opposed so to... Speaking, so speaking you know, with of retirement... Stocks, with individual yeah. funds, you've got to, you know, you're worried. And, you know, human beings worry a lot. So I'm worrying a lot for all of my investors, Barry, <laughs> trying my best. So, so I bet they're worried about when you're going to retire. You've been there for 30 years. Do you have any plan on leaving anytime soon? Or... Are you going to run Contra for another 30 years? <laughs> you know, I, the stock answer, Barry, is that it, I feel I can add value, and as long as I feel I can add value, I'm going to continue to run Contra Fund. As I said, Fidelity is a wonderful place to manage money. We're hiring new analysts young analysts all the time every year and it's those young analysts that provide extra energy new insights sort of an openness to new ideas you know what do i know from tinder and match.com but you know if i can ask the young analysts you know what phones they're using what apps they're using you know Tell me about this technology. You know, again, if you think Airbnb is going to go public, you and I, if are we going to sleep on somebody else's couch or in somebody else's apartment? Uber, are you going to get into somebody's car? Often when you hear the story for the first time, you're like, no way, but you have to keep an open mind. And by working with my younger colleagues, they help me stay open and, you know, try to embrace change and the new ideas. And, you know, when I think about the future, you know, whatever power artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to make this great software industry even more productive and even better, the intersection of software and healthcare. If you think about all the, you know, hopefully the great advances that are going to be made in in health and preventive medicine 
through, you know, leveraging big data and AI, it's just remarkable. And, nope. you know, no I'm, I'm optimistic, that. and I think, you know, I think the U.S. is a leader in the software industry and in Internet technology. You know, when you think about virtual reality and artificial reality and, you know, ambient computing, I mean, this whole idea of Alexa you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, is a great experimenter. He's, he's a great inventor. And to, you know, be able to walk into a room and talk to the computer, and as I understand it, pretty soon you're going to be walking down, you know, you're in New York, you're walking down Madison Avenue. Oh, Barry, we know you like Frappuccinos. There's a Starbucks around the corner. You can get 10% off right now. Sounds like a scene out of the movie Minority Report. Yes, with, exactly. Um, yeah, environment well, what you aware. can imagine is going to happen. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, all the innovation around the green industry and EVs and solar and wind. I think that <laughs> it's going to be these U.S. companies and, and Silicon Valley and the entrepreneurs are going to find better ways to you know to do things and hopefully consumers are going to benefit but sounds as, sounds optimistic as investors you know we have this great opportunity to partner with you know Elon Musk or you know other truly exceptional Jeff Bezos Mark Zuckerberg Mark Benioff I mean these these are truly exceptional people and you know here we are you know John Q Public can can be a partner buy a share I know I only have you another few minutes, another three minutes, so let me mm-hmm. plow through my uh, speed round questions, and let's see if we can get through these quickly. What are you watching these days? Any favorites <laughs> on Netflix or Amazon Prime? Yeah. I don't have a lot of time, Barry, but I did really like Fada, which is... Uh, so stressful. Is, uh, yeah, I like the intensity. I guess yeah, I, totally. I, I'm a sucker for, for thrillers, and, you know, I, I liked... Uh, House of Cards, and, you know, I'm a big shareholder of Netflix, and I think what Netflix has done is, is truly exceptional. And if I had to, I would, I would just Google the, you know, Netflix top ten. I've enjoyed uh, a lot of that stuff, but Fado is my favorite of all time. Let's talk about books. What are you reading now, and what are some of your favorites? Uh, yeah, during COVID, I, I really enjoyed a book called City of Thieves, mm-hmm. which is about uh, Leningrad during the war. A good friend recommended it. And, and now, right now I'm reading this uh, biography, the one-volume biography of Churchill. I'm forgetting the author, but it was published in like two, two or three years ago. And, I mean, it's just remarkable. His parents sort of ignored him. But he was an exceptional talent. And again, Barry, one insight is if you find a CEO or an entrepreneur who's exceptionally smart, like Winston Churchill was exceptionally smart, you know, they're going to possibly do really exceptional things. And, you know, and, uh, he, made his, he made a lot of mistakes. But, you know, when his time But defeated came, the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. You know, when the time came, he was the right guy. So, you know, one thing <laughs> over 30 years, you try to collect executives, and sometimes their sector is out of favor. But when they come into favor, the you know, the best of breed companies shine. What sort of advice would you give a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in asset management? 
I think you got to, you know, learn to swim by jumping in the water. So, you know, start a paper portfolio and, and start investing. Ideally, you know, get your you know, lawn mowing savings or whatever savings you've got. And even with, you know, $1,000, you can buy a couple of shares of, of your favorite companies. You, you've got to get in there. But the access to information has changed so much, Barry. In the last 30 years, when I started as a retail analyst at Fidelity, my first job was like write letters to the companies, send me the investment packet, send me the last two annual reports, and you know the last quarterly report and the 10Q. I mean, it, it took like two weeks to get started, and now you know it takes two seconds to Google, you know, IBM Investor Relations. You know, you can YouTube the new CEO. You can do your work sort of instantaneously. So, you know. You just got to get in there and, and do some research, you know, listen to the webcast and, you know, place your bets. So I I think, you you know, you just got to get in there and do it. And, you know, right. not everybody wants to, but I was a, a sort of a mediocre analyst. And, you know, over time, by doing, I have learned what works for me. And the only way you're going to learn your style and, you know, what works for you is to actually do it. And, you know, you got to be accepting. You know, mistakes are a big part of this business. Try to learn from your mistakes. You know, the great George Vanderheiden, who was a great mentor of mine, and, and I learned a lot from George. You know, he talked about keeping an investment diary uh-huh. on one little, you know, on one little index card or, you know, whatever the the digital version of index card, why am I buying this stock? You know, I'm going to buy, you know, XYZ company at $50 a share because they're expanding into India. India is a huge opportunity. I think, you know, they're earning $2 right now, but if they continue to grow outside of India by 10 to 15%, and India adds, you know, another, you know, 500 million of revenue at a certain margin, I think they can go from $2 of earnings to $5 in earnings. Let me yeah. let me ask you our final question now. What do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew when you first joined the Contra Fund 30 years ago? Barry, we've, we've talked a lot about sort of best of breed, great entrepreneurs. I, I guess I wish I had invested bigger with you know, these superior managers when they were younger and, you know, earlier on, you know, if I had met Sam Walton when he went public and I had that, you know, insight to say, wow, this is an exceptional story. But what's so hard, Barry, is when you first meet the company, as I said earlier, with Airbnb or Uber, it's like, what are you talking about, you know? (laughs) Or, you know, there's always the skeptic and you you have to try to anticipate and see around the corner and it's not easy but that that's what i would i would encourage people to you know keep thinking about the future keep thinking about trends stay within your circle of competence and stay flexible and continue to cast a wide net. You've really got to look everywhere. I mean, if you think about what what's happened in China, you know, I think China's grown their GDP 10% a year for the last 30 years, you know. 
it, it's going to overtake the U.S. You know, probably in the next decade. I mean, just it's, it's remarkable what compounding can do. And you know, you just you try to anticipate and project out into the future implications for you know what you're hearing right now, and you know, just try to stay informed. But you know, there's a lot of opportunity. Stuff. Yeah, it's really great. Thanks, Will, for being so generous with your time. That was Will Danoff. He runs Fidelity's Contra Fund. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous. 300 or so we've had over the past six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcasts at bloomberg.net. Be sure to check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com opinion. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. Reggie Bazil is our audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Our producer and booker is Michael Boyle. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>